0: Welcome, Litigation Nation. I'm your host, Luke Benke, alongside my co-host, Jack Sanker. For those of you new to the show, this is the podcast where we recap the most interesting legal news stories and talk about what you need to know. Jack Daniels is in the Supreme Court in a trademark dispute matter, a dog toy, of all things, mimics the famous bottle of booze. And Jack Daniels, frankly, the alcohol industry as a whole,
1: isn't happy about it. Jack, what do you got today? A Texas inmate is challenging his sentence after an interview conducted by comedian Jeff Ross showing the inmate making light of his crimes was used at his sentencing hearing. And a deep dive into Elon Musk's text messages, which were included in recent court filings, provides some interesting insight into the world of a tech billionaire. All that and more, here's what you need to know.
0: Jack Daniels is in the Supreme Court in a trademark dispute matter. A dog toy, of all things, mimics the famous bottle of booze. And Jack Daniels, and frankly, the alcohol industry as a whole, isn't happy about it. So let me set the stage here. Silly Squeakers makes dog toys. A quick Google search shows that their products look like famous bottles of alcohol. Corona, Heineken, PBR. Well, one of these dog toys is called Bad Spaniels and it resembles a bottle of Jack Daniels Old Number 7, except it says the Old Number 2 on your Tennessee carpet. Now, according to Forbes, Silly Squeakers contends its products are protected by the fair use provisions afforded to parity, which is a fancy way of saying it's a joke. But the famous whiskey maker doesn't see it that way. To be sure, the industry acknowledges that this case involves dog toys, but their position is that it doesn't take much imagination to see how this could lead to humorous products that encourage binge drinking, blacking out, underage drinking, drunk driving, etc. An amicus brief filed in support of Jack Daniels says, quote, the industry must have control over their trademarks for responsible advertising initiatives to succeed, close quote. In short, their position is that a vital part of the industry's work is self-regulation uh, to ensure that its products never improperly appeal to minors. And if it can't control its trademarks, then it's a lot harder for it to self-regulate. Or as the brief puts it, quote, policing such misconduct requires rigorous trademark enforcement and robust legal protection of members' marks, close quote. Interestingly, the Biden administration weighed in this week to support Jack Daniels, arguing the toy is not immune from the trademark lawsuit and that the Constitution, quote, does not confer any right to use another person's trademark or a confusingly similar mark as a source identifier for goods sold in commerce, close quote. So on the one hand, Silly Squeakers views its bad spaniels chew toy as a joke, whereas Jack Daniels thinks this is no laughing matter. To me, Jack, this seems like uh, a situation where jack daniels in the industry probably feels like they have to do something they've got to show the government like hey we're not asleep at the wheel we're awake we're checking on this stuff we see something that could be infringing on our trademark and we're aggressively pursuing it um but at the end of the day do they really care even though you strike me as more of a wine cooler kind of guy what
1: do you think no i mean my question is you know how long until uh jack daniels starts selling their own branded dog toys right That's, that's probably where this is going. And most of all, it's just like, oh man, if someone had a great idea and they're using our likeness, like we should probably be getting the money for that. Not the other folks. Well, that's interesting. I didn't even think of that, but yeah, you're right. Follow the money. Yeah. That, that, that tends to be the motivation behind a lot of this stuff. Back in 2015, comedian Jeff Ross, some of you might know him from the Comedy Central roasts, he's kind of like a mean insult comic, funny guy in my opinion, he visited a prison in Texas with a film crew from Comedy Central to film a comedy special where he interacted with prisoners there, which is kind of a neat idea, I guess. Now, a problem arose when he interacted with Mr. Gabriel Hall, who was at that time awaiting trial for double murder. I should tell you at this point that Hall has been convicted of first degree murder for two people stabbing both of them to death. And what seems like a pretty open shut case, the verdict came down in 2017, not exactly a sympathetic character, but I'll set that aside for now. Anyways, back in 2015, prior to the conviction, comedian, Jeff Ross interacted with Gabriel Hall in prison. The interaction was filmed and ultimately didn't make it into the special that aired sometime, I think in 2019, but It was some kind of banter between Hall and Ross that prosecutors in Texas actually subpoenaed from Comedy Central. And according to a number of outlets, though, I'm relying primarily on Rolling Stone for this one, the footage played out as follows. Quoting from Rolling Stone, quote, What are you in for? Hacking someone's computer? Ross asked Hall at one point, making a racist joke about Hall's Filipino background. Something like that, Hall said, before another incarcerated person chimed in, hacking being the operative word. Now, remember, he was eventually convicted of stabbing two people. Going back to the piece, quote, Hall joked that he took a machete to someone's screen. Ross said he seemed like a scary dude, to which Hall said, oh, come on, I wouldn't hurt a fly. Ross asked, what about a human? Hall said, ah, they're annoying, unquote. Now, the footage of this interaction was shown at the sentencing portion of the trial, uh, at which Hall was sentenced to death, Now, prosecutors claim this footage showed he had no remorse for the murders that he convicted of in 2015 and argued that here he was joking about the murders, in fact. Now, Hall's attorney are appealing the issue, arguing that the interview by Ross of Hall was in violation of Hall's Sixth Amendment rights. On December 28th, just a few days ago, uh, Hall's attorney, Mackenzie Edwards, posted their cert petition to the U.S. Supreme Court on Twitter. Now, quoting from the petition, Quote, the video dehumanized petitioner as funny-looking, weird-acting foreigner, contained comments mocking petitioner's demeanor and appearance, and included oblique but hostile or belittling reference to petitioner's ethnic heritage. And the video emphasized many false, unfair, and damaging stereotypes about inmates in prison, ergo that prison is like a summer camp, a place inmates can have some laughs and talk about sex. Each of these improper factors could easily have affected the jury's view of whether the circumstances of petitioners' background justified leniency. Unquote. Now, moreover, according to the petition, Hall's attorney had sent a no contact letter to the state sheriff's office, advising them that under no circumstances should the state try and speak with Mr. Hall pending his trial without the presence of his attorney. And the petition essentially argues that the state used comedian Jeff Ross as a way to circumvent Hall's Sixth Amendment objections by sending in a non-state actor to abstain statements from Ross that otherwise would be inadmissible for use at trial or sentencing. Now, no word on whether the cert petition has been granted or not, we'll find out probably the next few weeks, but it should present an interesting case as Hall allegedly did sign the standard TV release, allowing comedy central to use the interview if they wanted to. If this gets picked up by the Supreme court, we'll let you know. Luke, do you have any thoughts on this one?
0: Similar to, um, to one that we did, last time or that we discussed last time, um, you know, our, our lyrics in a song, uh, admissible. Um, and I think my reaction to this story is, is the same. I, if you've got, um, comments from an, a, an accused, um, criminal, uh, those generally speaking are, are, can be admissible um, against him or her, the question is, you know, how much weight, um, do you give it, uh, here, I don't know that these comments were necessarily used in convicting the, the, the prisoner, but certainly were used in sentencing. So I, I guess I tend to agree that, um, you know, that comments made by accused, uh, criminals can be used against them.
1: You know, I haven't seen the video, obviously, that was, but it was played before the jury and it allegedly, you know, depicted the uh, the convicted murderer, by the way, let's not lose sight of that, um, as making light of his circumstances and, and kind of joking around about it, et cetera. Now, I think, though, if you put a camera in front of someone's face and you seat them across the table from a famous comedian and, you know, that comedian kind of starts ribbing you and, and you know, you, you may start kind of playing along whether you feel that way or not. Um I don't know if it's necessarily fair to depict uh, this individual as having no remorse. Whether he did or didn't, I have no idea. Um, but, you know, you're putting a comedian in the room for the purposes of getting laughs and, and getting people to play along with his bit. Um, I don't know if that's really indicative of how the person actually feels about you know the very serious crime that he was accused of and ultimately convicted of. Um, on the Sixth Amendment issue, though, kind of an interesting case here. Uh, because the attorney you know, did send um, a no contact letter, uh, advised the state that under no circumstances can you contact my client without my presence there. And in a normal setting, like if the sheriff were to you know, put the, the inmate in a, in a closed room and start interrogating him there, I think we would probably all agree that that evidence is going to be inadmissible on the Sixth Amendment uh, grounds, Right. Um, so the question is whether, you know, a non-state actor like comedian Jeff Ross can get around those, uh, objections, you know, by virtue of filming a comedy special in the area. Um, you know, I don't know. (laughs) I, I, it doesn't, it does seem like a convenient workaround for the state here. And, um, but then again, doesn't seem to be, there doesn't seem like there was any undue pressure by the state to get the inmate to talk. And it does seem like he willingly participated in this process and you know, his statements were used against him. So it's, it's difficult one. I'll be interested to see what the Supreme court does with it. They take the case up.
0: Yeah. I think, I think that's the key there, Jack, right? If, if the state was like, boy, this guy's a tough nut to crack, we better go get comedian Jeff Ross to get him to talk. uh, Then I agree. You've got a sixth amendment problem. Uh, On the other hand, if that wasn't the intent at all and, the, uh, you know, the prisoner started sharing, um, or joking about his, uh, his situation with, uh, with the, with the comedian, I've got a hard time believing that's a Sixth Amendment problem.
1: Am I wrong that like t- crosstalk between inmates is frequently introduced at this phase? I mean, I'm not a criminal attorney, but I like if, for example, the inmate in this case was talking with his bunkmate about the murder right? Isn't that pretty much always admissible? And I guess, how is that different? Um, you know, in this scenario, how would that be different? So I don't, I don't know. We'll see.
0: Yeah. Right. Again, that goes to sure. I mean, y- you can object on hearsay grounds or, or say that, you know, the bunk mate has his own tail, his own hide in mind. And so he's making this stuff up. But again, that's, that's weight and credibility, not whether it's admissible Two two completely different questions.
1: Up next, there's hardly anything else to write or say about Elon Musk that hasn't been said, so I'm not going to try. The inventor, entrepreneur, investor has, by some accounts, lost something like half of his net worth and would likes to be, at least uh, at present moment, a troublesome acquisition of social media company Twitter. As I write this, I'm looking at my own Tesla shares, which are tanking on my phone's trading app, um, which I'm not happy to see. But before we get into this, I do want to pat the show on its back because way back in episode 30, we correctly predicted that he'd be forced to purchase Twitter after trying to pull out. We don't make many predictions on the show, but when we do, you could take it to the bank, baby. Anyways, The Atlantic this week has a fun write-up about Exhibit H, which is the document introduced in certain filings in the lawsuit by the Twitter board against Musk, which we correctly predicted would result in him being forced to make purchase. Exhibit H is the subpoenaed and redacted text between Elon and dozens of other tech molos and famous people. And it's worth flipping through, if only because it shows the kind of informal, nonchalant way in which huge, massive deals are conducted by some of the richest people to have ever lived. Quoting from the Atlantic write-up on this, quote, <clears throat> In message after message, context urge Musk to take control of Twitter and to solve its problem as only he can The trend extends beyond Twitter. This year, Musk peers at companies such as Meta crack down on employees hoping to usher in a more authoritarian brand of management after years of free lunches, competitive perks, and remote work. The Musk messages also reveal how some of the richest and most powerful men in the world treat actual billions of dollars with the level of care more appropriate for a three-year-old tossing around Monopoly cash. Oracle's founder, Larry Ellison, essentially writes Musk a blank check over text pledging, quote, a billion or whatever you recommend. The venture capitalist Mark Anderson unsolicitedly offers Musk $250 million with no additional work required. Michael Grimes, a top investment banker at Morgan Stanley, proposes a meeting with Sam Bankman-Fried as a way to, quote, get us $5 billion equity in an hour, unquote. Later in the piece, the author goes on to write, the blight this is the point. It's a total power move to talk about getting $5 billion equity in an hour the same way that we mere mortals talk about Venmoing a friend $15 for lunch. The texts make it clear that these men are fundamentally alienated from the rest of the world by their wealth. In one sense, the texts show that billionaires are just like us. They're not doing advanced calculus. They're in their DMs talking smack, making jokes, and trying desperately to get their way. Lauren Pringle, the editor-in-chief of the Chancery Daily told the author of the Atlantic piece, but she added, These are absolutely not normal people with a normal understanding of the world. Unquote. Now, your mileage may vary on this, and in some sense, us normal people can never truly relate to the people with the net worth of small countries. But insofar as we can read it anything, and really what else can we do, the texts are revealing. For example, the most important and relative texts. From the threads seemed to be when then-CEO of Twitter, Parag Agarwal, politely asked Musk to chill out on tweeting disparaging things about Twitter before the acquisition, at which point Musk had only owned, I think, 9% as a public shareholder. Going back to the piece, quote, The entire document is a demonstration of elite-level brown-nosing with the exception of one man, then-Twitter CEO, Parag Agarwal. The two seem to hit it off. Musk likes that Agarwal is an engineer who can do hardcore programming, but then Agarwal sends Musk a text about his unhinged tweets. You are free to tweet is Twitter dying or anything else about Twitter, but it's my response to to tell you that it's not helping make Twitter better in the current context, he says to Musk. This small suggestion appears to enrage Musk, and it seems alters the entire history of the company forever. What did you get done this week, Musk shoots back. And then, less than one minute later, the billionaire writes, I'm not joining the board. This is a waste of time. We'll make an offer to take Twitter private, unquote. And the rest, as they say, is history. It's probably a bit myopic to suggest that Agarwal telling Musk to chill out is what pu- pushed Musk into making an offer. But then again, consider the offer itself for Twitter was essentially a joke. The offer was for $54.20 per share, which is a meme offer based on a four twenty reference. And they consider that Musk assumed he'd be, a- be able to easily back out of the deal, despite the offer and the execution of the contract. So in that context, it does seem possible that the decision to buy Twitter for $44 billion was impulsive, maybe even ego-driven. Now betting against Elon in the long run seems to be a losing proposition thus far, but it does seem like it could have been a bit of a tantrum that spiraled into what could end up being one of the worst acquisitions in living history, completely unforced error from the richest man alive. Regardless, it's a fun reminder that your exhibits are public record and there's fun stuff in there if you want to go digging around. Luke, do you have any thoughts on this? I mean,
0: and in some ways, too, like how exhausting it must be to be those types of people, right? Where like everything you do needs like four lawyers to look at it and, you know, and you need your PR person to look at it. And like I can't imagine living life that
1: way. Yeah. I mean, love him or hate him. The one, the the thing that I find absolutely fascinating about Musk is that he just doesn't do that stuff. And he is like on Twitter with his ass hanging out basically all day. And, um, yeah, you know, which makes it really hard to look away, at least from my perspective, I've kind of followed this story pretty closely just because I'm like, is this really happening? You know, the amount of scrutiny that, that I put into like, Deals that are worth hundreds of thousands of dollars is incredible compared to the lack of scrutiny that seemed to went into this $44 billion acquisition. Thanks everyone for listening. Uh, As always, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, wherever you get your podcasts, new episodes every two weeks. Um, From Amundsen Davis, this is Jack Sanker along with Luke Benke, and we'll talk to you in two weeks.
0: As always, if you have any thoughts on any of these stories, let us know what you think. Leave your comments below or shoot us an email. Until next time.